Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. On today's episode, we have British author, explorer, ex-armed forces operative, and just overall badass, Levison Wood. Thanks for joining us, Levison. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You like being called Lev? Lev, Levison, whichever whichever you prefer. Let's go for Lev, it's shorter. So you started off with a degree in history, and you jumped straight into the armed forces. And, you know, this is a pattern. Randolph Fiennes had this as a pattern. Mm -hmm. Um, Walk us through what that experience was like, and, and is that part of the DNA that is required to really sort of enjoy life as an explorer? Um, well, I, I'd always wanted to join the army ever since I was a kid. I think it was, that was something certainly in my, my family's DNA. My, my father was in the, in the reserves. My grandfather fought in the war. So it's something that had been sort of etched on my, my um, identity, I guess. And so growing up, that was certainly a career path that I um, wanted to explore. But, you know, as I, as I grew up, I also had this burning desire to travel. So that was really my first love was traveling. So at the age of 18, I, I set off on a gap year like lots of other kids do and went and did the very cliched route around Southeast Asia and Australia and, and did all that sort of fun stuff. And it, it left um, you know, a, a deep um, sort of memory of, of just having a great time. And, and so I wanted to travel, but I also wanted to join the army. I studied history at university because um, I'd always been fascinated by people's lives, by the past and how it influences the present. And um, those two things combined, you know, inspired me. Part of what I studied during that, that degree was, was the history of travel writing and, and explorers and, and people that made these long journeys. Um, so before I actually joined the army, I thought I better go and actually put my money where my mouth is and go and do my own big journey. So I decided at the age of 22 to go and hitchhike. Uh, the ancient Silk Road from Europe all the way to India. So I traveled over land um, for the most part on my own through Central Asia, through places like Afghanistan, Iran, um, Pakistan. And, and actually it was a fascinating journey that, that um, left its mark. And um, whilst I still had this desire to join the army, I think really it was that, that desire to travel that, that drove me. But nevertheless, I did join the army and went away and, and actually revisited Afghanistan under very different circumstances, as you, as you can imagine. Um, but, you know, the army teaches you some some great skills, you know, not just the practical skills of um, pushing yourself to your physical and mental limits, but but also um, leadership, teamwork, you know, as, a, as, an, as an officer, as a platoon commander, um, and, and you're going up through the ranks to, to captain. Um, you're in charge of a lot of young men whose lives are in your hand. You've got a lot of responsibility at a relatively young age. Um, and that gives you confidence. Um, so I, I took that beyond when I, when I left the army. Um, then I sort of used those skills to do what I'm doing now. And the sort of the, the past sort of seven or eight years has been a real roller coaster ride using those skills. But I've certainly got the army to thank for enabling me to do what I'm doing now. So if we go a little bit deeper into the, the armed forces and, and kind of how we could model some of the training into the commercial world. I know that you were in the parachute regiment. I'm not as familiar with regiments and, and the training that each different regiment received, but is there anything from those years that has served you well in terms of the companies that you've created since, in terms of managing people, in terms of 
incentivization. And of course, there's a stereotype that you leverage authority in the army as a way of getting stuff done. Yeah. But I presume that authority only gets you so far and there's got to be a buy-in from the troops, if you will. And maybe you can walk us through some of the leadership lessons and some of the people management lessons you learned during those four years. Sure. Um, so I was in, in the parachute regiment, which is considered to be the elite in the British Army. Um, and it's, it's tough to get in. You know, you pass a series of mental and physical tests, um, arguably the hardest in, in the army. Um, and that gives you, um, I guess you're, you're sort of automatically, therefore, put in a slight cut above the rest. Um, what that means, though, of course, is that you're thrown in at the age of 22, 23 as, as a young officer in charge of also the best soldiers in the army, um, many of whom have got, you know, years, decades of experience, um, a number of combat tools under their belt. So it's, it's quite intimidating. So you have to gain their respect and their trust very early on. Um, luckily, you know, the Sandhurst and the officer selection and training does um, put you in very good stead for that. But nevertheless, you, you do go into a, a situation where you have to make your mark very, very quickly. Um, I think what I learned from, from my years in, in the Army as an officer, um, and I'm still actually technically in, in the reserve, so I do still try and contribute where, where I can. Um, but, but actually being a, a platoon commander, which basically means that you're in charge of between 30 to 40 young men, um, you know, a lot of whom are, are really, yeah, that these are hard guys. These are guys that, that, that are very fit, very strong, very capable. And, you know, they, they don't suffer fools gladly. So I think what I learned was um, the need to lead by example, you know, to demonstrate the, I mean, the army's got a, um, a series of values and standards, um, and it's basically demonstrating all of those. So being, um, being loyal, and that means being loyal, yes, to your superior commanders, but also expressing that loyalty down. So basically sticking up for your men. And, and that might mean, you know, not basically just being a yes man and, and saying yes to your boss. Sometimes you have to sort of fight back for the sake of your own team and make sure that, um, uh, you know, they're not being overutilized or underutilized or whatever, you know, they need to make sure that they're treated fairly and you act as that mediator between your own hierarchy. Um, and what that does, if because if, if you're simply a yes man and, and saying yes to everything your boss um, wants you to do, perhaps then then that obviously is going to get you pretty riled or yeah, or indeed in the army, yeah, it could get you killed. So um, it's making sure your men trust you to stand up for them. I think that's really important. Um, <clears throat> I think some of the lessons I learned was the the need for, you know, you've got to go that extra mile, the need for the selfless commitment, making sure that you put your team first. And there are very simple ways of achieving that. In the army, as an officer, you um, it's always been expected, and this has been in, in the sort of in the Queen's regulations for for you know decades, if, if not if not longer. It's certainly a, a very established tradition that the men eat first. And when you're out on operations, you know, if um, if there's a shortage of food, you need, you need to make sure your, your, your guys, your men and women under your command eat their food first. And that sounds very, very simple, but actually it's a, it's a demonstration of that selflessness that's um, instrumental in, in being a leader, I think, because it shows that you care about them. Um, and that, that can also mean the same, you know, in, if there's a huge queue for the canteen, um, you join the back of it like everybody else. You don't push in just because you are a rank above. Um, and that really does get people's trust on, and gets them on side. Um, but I think above all else, it, it's having the courage to make the right decisions, um, to not just take the easy option. Um, and that courage 
enables you to lead from the front and set an example. Um, and as a, you know, as an example in the in the army, as an officer, you're expected to be fit. You're expected to be strong. You know, you might be a good leader, but if you if you're lagging behind, you know, your, your men just aren't going to take you seriously. So it's it's being willing to put yourself um, at the front, being willing to um, get stuck in, um, and knowing you know, your subordinates' jobs as well as they do. Now, that obviously doesn't always work in, for example, a tech company where you're not necessarily going to be a specialist. But I think it's having a good understanding of the jobs expected of you and men because if you don't know how to do their jobs, then, you know, you're not going to be able to lead effectively. Um, I mean, one example was from on operations um, in Afghanistan. This was back in 2008. Um, I was sent on a mission to go and rescue some guys their vehicle had been blown up by a landmine and we just got the report that they were about a mile away and we didn't know what the situation was so i took um three vehicles in convoy to drive up to the position and we saw them in the middle of this open area and luckily the guys were all okay the vehicle's completely blown apart but somehow three guys had been sort of ejected out of the vehicle and they were all fine so we drove to go and pick them up we loaded them into another vehicle and um, we basically t- sort of drove, turned around, did a three-point turn and driving out. The three guys that have just been blown up were at, at this point in the first vehicle, and lo and behold, boom, this, the first vehicle blew up again, so it was obvious that we were in a minefield. Um, the three guys had now been blown up twice. <laughs> Luckily, they'd all been blown out of the vehicle again, and they were all absolutely fine, um, but they were sort of lying around the place, um, dusting themselves off, and I had to sort of at this stage, show and demonstrate a bit of leadership by just telling everyone to calm down. Obviously, everyone's a bit shaken up at this stage. Um, but because we knew we were in a minefield at this stage, I couldn't just ask any of my men to go and drag these guys into our vehicle now because it was asking somebody, you know, I had to go and demonstrate that to get the team cohesiveness to come back together. So I personally had to go out um, and we didn't have much equipment. All we had was our sort of um, bayonets. So I went and basically prodded the ground in front of me to each of these guys to to drag them in um, one by one. And that was, um, you know, I think that for me was was a way of hopefully showing the guys that I was willing to take those risks as much as they were um, in a very dangerous environment. Um, But, you know, that was something that was expected of everybody when you're in the army on operations. And so I'd I'd like to think that everybody um, is willing and capable of doing that. I think they are. And I certainly saw amazing examples of bravery and and leadership at all levels. I mean, I think one of those issues that um, surfaces when you hear stories like you personally going and identifying potential mines is whether or not in a commercial setting that's effective delegation. You know, it's great maybe perhaps in the military to show that because it's a situation where other people's lives are at risk and you demonstrating that courage allows other people to rally behind you behind that courage. I think commercially, what I'd like to hear maybe a little later when you're talking about black main media and you talk about Secret Compass is how that translates into a commercial world where sometimes you getting your hands dirty, literally, is inefficient for the success of the business. It is something that needs to be delegated, but mm-hmm. at the same time, preserving that spirit. And how do you manage that? You know, how do you map that? So maybe, you know, if we, if we, if we borrow from your armed forces experience and move to when you left and into the other things, maybe you can share how that translated. So what was the first thing you did after you left the armed forces? So I left the armed forces um, and I wanted to get back into the world of travel. I, I had my, my vision was to, to write a book 
um, and to undertake challenging expeditions. That's what I wanted to do. Um, but before I could do that with any credibility, I thought that what I needed to go and do was do some practice runs. And I thought a good way of doing that would be to establish a business that specialised in expeditions. I mean, I'd done lots of expeditions before. I'd led expeditions in the military and got the sort of relevant qualifications. But I think that's one thing. But as a 26, 27-year-old, what you really need is to demonstrate some commercial viability. So um, for about two and a half, three years, um, I, I set up a company called Secret Compass with um, basically a friend from, from the army, from the parachute regiment, who was in the same, sort of same boat as me. And we set up a business that specialised in expeditions to remote and quite often dangerous places. Um, places like Afghanistan, places like Iraq, Sudan, Madagascar, um, all sorts of environments and terrains, often in fairly politically turbulent areas. Um, but the idea was, you know, that the world of adventure travel is fairly well established now, but what we wanted to do is demonstrate that in the right hands that you can go to places you wouldn't previously imagine even possible in a safe way. You know, we weren't certainly weren't being reckless. We understood risk having been in the army and we wanted to apply the lessons that we'd learnt to enable people to visit off the beaten track areas in a way that hadn't been done before. So we wanted to disrupt the travel industry and I think we achieved that in a, a relatively short amount of time. Um, but of course, we wanted to utilise our experience and skills learnt in the army, but also only use the bits that worked. And what you referred to there about um, that transferability of skills, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, you don't necessarily want to do everything yourself because it's not, not effective. You know, you want to make sure that you're, you know, we call it the sort of long screwdriver approach in the army where, you know, the worst kind of boss, and we've all seen it, is somebody that just meddles in everything. Um, the army's got a very good term it doesn't always um do it effectively um but i think there's a lot of people that want it to, to see that work it's called mission command and what that means and i'm sure that there's many terms of business that effectively mean the same thing but mission command is the doctrine whereby um one gives the mission to your subordinates you tell somebody um what to do but not how to do it and so it really is basic delegation. It's, it's giving somebody that mission statement um, and the end result, the effect that you want to achieve. And then you've just got to trust in your subordinates how they do it. And there, there might be three or four ways. And yes, you might have the experience to do it yourself and you might prefer to do it one way, but you have to take a step back and actually say, you know what, get on with it. Just make sure that is achieved in, in whatever way you want to do it. And that empowers them because it gives them that sense of, of leadership themselves to manage their own teams. Um, and it gives them a, an element of creativity that, that would, would not be there if you're trying to manage every little moving part. So that's how we went into the, the mentality of business. We wanted to um, take that sense of mission command. Um, and for the first part, you know, for the first few journeys and expeditions and productions that we ran, it was, it was you know, we were a very small company. It was, there was literally just two full-time staff. Um, How many part-time staff? Well, two, two as well. So it's pretty, well. pretty small. We had a couple of interns yeah. and myself and Tom. Um, that grew uh, slowly. I mean, initially, of course, we didn't get any investment, so we, we wanted to try and grow this organically. Um, and uh, but it, it was effective because you know we as as individuals had the the, cre the credibility, and I think that transferred to some very successful um, expeditions. That then led on to some very successful productions because we were going to these interesting places before we knew it we got the likes of national geographic discovery channel ringing us up saying look you're going and doing these journeys can you take our 
film crews and, and so on. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it grew actually very quickly over the course of a couple of years. Um, and, but the lessons remain the same. We wanted to be authentic. We wanted to have good credibility um, because in, in that travel and adventure industry, there are, there are not actually many um, ex-military guys, surprisingly. Most guys, when they leave the military, go into either finance, uh, work in the city, or um, go into the world of security um you know, infosec, you know, cybersec, all that sort of stuff, black water. Um, yes, so wherever you go in the world, there's usually a, a seedy bar with an ex-paratrooper hanging out in it. Yeah. But um, so it was, it was an industry that we, you know, we both traveled, we both saw it as a... And how long that, was that for, Secret Compass? Well, it's still running, still going strong. But um, we, we set it up back in 2010. Um, and yeah, it sort of grew, grew, grew pretty quickly. We went from running... You know, we did our a flagship expedition the following year in 2011, just one expedition. Um, the following year, we ran three or four. The year after that, it was up to about six or seven. And now the company's, um, although I'm not involved, the company's running um, several. I think it's, you know, up, upwards of 20, 30 expeditions a year, not to mention other bespoke projects. So the company's doing really well. Um, but really, it was about maintaining the that ethos of, mm. of authentic adventure and not not diluting it. What was the most difficult expedition that Secret Compass offered for customers? Well, physically, I mean, we did some remarkable things. We we trekked the length of um, the Wakhan Corridor in Afghanistan. It's about two hundred and fifty miles through incredibly remote terrain. Um, we did some rafting in places like South Sudan, which was on the fringes of a civil war at that stage. Um, walked across the whole of Madagascar, which was, was through completely uncharted jungle. Trekked across the Sahara Desert in Sudan. So they were all very, very challenging. Um, but uh, I think the biggest challenge though is, is making sure and, uh, that you know, you're, you're doing something that is very, very physically challenging, um, bureaucratically challenging. How do you then take paying clients um, bring them on board a team, integrate that team, and make sure everyone's aware of what the challenges are, what the risks are. Um, it's an attractive proposition. So a lot of people are like, oh, I'd love to do that. I'd love to walk across Madagascar. The reality is, you know, these people need to go away and train. They need to do their homework. And, and our company did provide all of the um, logistical support, but it's down to each individual to make sure that they are personally prepared for it. So really, I think one of these challenges was communication, was making sure that people understood that this is not a holiday, you know, this is actually a challenging expedition where, you know, you're going to be away from uh, any sort of civilization. And that means you might not see another human being for three weeks, you know, apart from the close team. So um, you walked right into the question I wanted to ask you, which was selection of people. Yeah. And there's a book that was written by an ex-Navy SEAL called Tom Shea called Unbreakable. And in it, he identifies people's inner monologue as a key variable for why they fail at tasks and at buds, which is the you know the selection mm -hmm. process for SEALs. Yeah. He talks about how the people that failed out almost always used specific words in how they represented why they were failing. You know, whether it was the words like hope, I hope that I'm gonna pass and, and so he, he does a, a really decent job in the book of identifying how inner monologue can defeat somebody. Mm -hmm. Because you were not only a, a leader within the armed forces, but now a leader of expeditions that could easily get people killed if they were not, you know, regimented in their training process. What are the key characteristics that you've identified in both troopers and or in clients that identifies or perhaps telegraphs their grit, their resilience? Mm. And how would you transfer that into people that you are looking to hire 
especially if you're working on a startup, so that you make the right selection of people who are not expected to be coddled, but rather understand that it requires grit. Yeah. Well, that is one of the biggest challenges, is making sure that you're aware of the team. And I think actually a lot of it is simply down to intuition. Um, when you're dealing with clients, you can you can just tell people who've got the right attitude. And that comes down to them being willing to ask questions, um, being not being afraid of, of showing their own vulnerability. And I, one guy, one client for a, for a journey, one of the earliest journeys that we did with Secret Compass, um, was an Egyptian financier. He'd literally never... Never, he said, you know, he was totally honest and said, look, I've never really been outside of the air-conditioned office, you know, other than walking to the shop once. And, and you know, he was, he said, look, I go to the gym, I'm fit, and I've always wanted to go to Madagascar. Can I come? And I, I, I made make a sort of big decision here. This is a guy who's got no experience. There was other people on the expedition team who had got a lot more experience. Um, and I didn't want to sort of make it tougher for everybody else if this guy had to be carried. But... I said, you know, I, I'm just not sure about this. You know, I, I'm going to have to go away and think. But he was persistent. He was like, look, I know I can do this. Um, I'm capable of it. I'm willing to train. I'm willing to put the hours in. Um, I need to come on this. And it was his, his persistence that um, actually convinced me that he, he should be on the team. Um, not least, you know, he had a good sense of humor. And I think that it's little things like that that make you realize that this is somebody with, who's going to be a good team player. And he did. He went away and trained. He turned up completely fit. And he just nailed it. He was absolutely fine, and despite the fact that he'd never been anywhere near a jungle before, let alone um, spent three weeks track- tracking through some of the most remote rainforests on the planet. Um, and I think that is transferable. I think it's it's those people skills I think that are really important. Um, and I've been through this process on a number of occasions now, um, building my own startups. Um, most recently, I've set up a production company with with two other guys. Um, Having worked in television over the past five, six years, um, I know what works and what doesn't. And when you're away in quite testing circumstances, you need a good team that, that, that fuses well. Everybody needs to contribute. And I say this again, it's actually a good, having a good sense of humor. You know, Having a, a way of dealing with the stresses of very long hours, often in uncomfortable circumstances, you might be sleeping out in the desert and uh, and, and so on. That, that means that you need people who, who are resilient emotionally and mentally resilient. You don't necessarily need to have the fittest physically um, guys on the team, but what you do need is people who are capable of withstanding that stress. Um, and, and I select, you know, the guys on on my teams based on uh, those criteria. It's, you know, do are they going to bring something? to the team beyond their technical skills. Obviously that, that's a given. You need somebody in my, you know, in this instance, who's a good photographer or who's a good cameraman or a good logistician. Um, but what else do they bring? You know, are they a good team player? Are they willing to get stuck into tasks that are beyond their remit? You know, perhaps. Are they um, going to keep up morale when they're going is tough? Um, and, and so I think based on that, you know, on the, on my, my recent company, Blackmate, um, I set it up with two guys, both of whom I'd worked with before on previous productions. Um, and it's a case of incentivizing. So we sat down together and decided, look, let's do this. Let's do a big journey together, which is my most recent expedition, which has been a circumnavigation of the Arabian Peninsula. So obviously a quite a contested and a controversial region, not, not, um, not only to say dangerous as well in, in many parts. And I needed the very best people on board. So I sat down with two guys, Simon and Dave, both of whom bring very different but equally important skills to, to the table. 
Um, and we're all very different personalities, but you know, one of the guys is ex-regular army, one of the guys is a reservist. But um, you know, they they both both good characters, both very intelligent, emotionally intelligent as well. Um, and I think that's important. Um, people are willing to communicate. That's that's really important. Communicators, people who can um, express what's you know what's going on. Obviously, from a professional point of view, but also being able, if there's a problem in that team, to sit down and actually raise it and, and not not be sort of pandering around issues. Because when you're in the middle of Syria, for instance, as I was last month, you know, the last thing you need is somebody bottling up what they really want to say. You know, you need somebody who can just get on with it and, and talk about if there's a problem and dealing with it. You know, like like adults. Um, so, is there, is there a way to? Address with it. I was speaking with a friend of mine who did the clip around the world mm. race, and he was telling me that if anything happens whilst on the boat, you have to not talk about it until the next port. Because if you talk about it and it explodes during the actual water time, mm. you could actually end up getting somebody killed. Whereas you just have to swallow it and then wait till the next docking, and then you then chat. It was anything like that. Any sort of ways of handling and, and and maybe managing that stress in a constructive way to have communication surface at the right time? Well, I think one example there, I mean, I, I stay away from the water, so I can't comment on that. Um, but one, one example that relates both to the military and um, what I'm doing now is if you're in the middle of um, a firefight you know, on, on operations in Afghanistan, or if you're in the middle of um, a dangerous situation where you're held as a checkpoint. Obviously, that's not the, the appropriate time to have an argument uh, within the team. You know, so there is there is an appropriate time to to keep that to yourself um, to ensure that the team cohesiveness stays together. And that comes down to trust, and that comes down to knowing that you know, even though you probably disagree on something, and, and that's going to happen in teams, you might have a uh, an issue that needs resolving. Um, and, and we've had this when, you know, when the, the stress levels are high, we've been stopped at police checkpoints in the middle of the night in Syria. We've been arguing over some, some minor issue. There is that. That's the time to actually, you know, put that to one side, deal with the matter in hand because you trust each other with your lives. Um, you know, we're in the world of business. If you're, you've got an equity partner with your money, um, you, need to, you need to know when, when is an appropriate time. But I think it's also very healthy not to bottle it for too long i think you know at the end of our, an operation for for instance rather than coming straight back to the uk after being out in afghanistan for months um the army does decompression training which is a, a euphemism for going to um cyprus you go on a beach and just get very drunk and i know that sounds very unprofessional but it is a very good way of letting all of those emotions out it's a very good way of you know, all of the, the months of, of stress and pent-up anger, you know, and sometimes this results in a few, let's say, harsh words, if not a little bit more. But you know what? It gets it out of the way. So it's not then transferred back home. And so I think that's important. And and likewise with um, with my, my journeys, you know, we, 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 we traveled through Iraq, through Syria. You know, we got shot at by, by ISIS. We got ambushed. We got all sorts of um, issues along the way. And um, when we make sure that when, it, when they're... There is an appropriate time. We we let our hair down. We go out as a team and we socialise as a team. And we go out for a, a nice meal. We have a, a few glasses of wine, probably a couple too many, and and we get all of the stuff that we haven't talked about out. But we try and do it in a timely manner. So you know, rather than leaving it weeks and weeks, you know, it's better to just sit down, you know, the following day or as soon as the, the opportunity arises and discuss these matters. Because I think communication, for me certainly, that's something I've learned is is a very very important part of teamwork and mm -hmm. leadership. 
I want to make sure that we have a chance to promote your new show, just because it seems like this is the right time. You mentioned it briefly. So for those of you who are listening, if you haven't caught up with the TV shows that uh, Loves have, has produced over the years, uh, we have Walking the Nile, Walking the Himalayas, Walking the Americas, and he just came back, clearly in one piece, from uh, Walking the Arabian Peninsula. Do you want to share a little bit more about what people can expect in this, maybe a little tease as to some of the things, I mean, you mentioned getting shot at, but mm. uh, maybe a little bit about what people could expect and when to tune in and when it's going to go live and anybody who's, who's a fan of yours, how they can engage. Sure. Yeah. Well, so after the three initial walking journeys last year, last April, I did another journey over the Caucasus Mountains from Russia to Iran, which was actually a, a sort of a bit of a um, revisit for me because when I was 22 on the hitchhike that I mentioned, um, overland along the Silk Road, I thought I'd go and revisit that journey. So I, that was amazing to go and see the same places and actually bump into some of the same people from 15 years previously. Yeah, I remember that episode where you bumped into that one guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, it was remarkable. <laughs> um, and and actually, it was a region, you know, it's, it's the sort of fringes of Europe. It's on the edge of a very, again, a contested area. We, we hear about it, a lot about Iran mm-hmm. um, in the news, a lot of, about places like Chechnya. Um, but for me, the journey that I've wanted to do for a very long time has been something in the Middle East because it is such a controversial region. It's a very misunderstood region. Um, and it's usually in the news for all the wrong reasons and it rarely gets a positive press. So I wanted to go and see with my own eyes to get some ground truth about, you know, what is the situation? What do the people think on all the different sides of the different conflicts that are going on there? So I went, um, I, the aim was to go all the way around the Arabian Peninsula, starting in Syria, through Iraq, around the Gulf, um, across the empty quarter deserts, um, through places like Yemen, through Jordan, through um, Israel and Palestine and and, Le- and Syria. So it was it was very very diverse. That's what struck me the most. Um, the people were very hospitable. I was looked after um, on all sides of the political spectrum, on all sides of the religious spectrum, and and actually I wanted to go there without any prejudice, try and just be objective and to learn more about what the people feel on the ground. And uh, yeah, it was, it was an amazing journey. It was certainly had its moments um, of, of jeopardy, of danger, but also I think the enduring thing was that was the incredible human stories that I encountered along the way and the characters and, and ultimately the people that live there. So hopefully that will come across. Um, I'm writing a book about it. That, that should be out in the summer. And we filmed it, so there will be a documentary coming out too. In the summer as well? Hopefully. I've got to sell it first. <laughs> oh, excellent. Well, well, hopefully we can, you know, pimp out the, the, the show excellent. as part of this podcast. <laughs> One of the things that I, uh, and I, if I get the nomenclature wrong, uh, I apologize, but you might, you might get where I'm coming from. Uh, the concept of a friction point in a plan. And from what I understood in the armed forces, it's uh, looking at a plan and thinking what could go wrong. Yeah. And then trying to come up with all the different ways that you could solve that prior to then going and, and doing something. And, you know, in, in previous interviews that you've had, you've talked about um, doing risk analysis mm-hmm. and, and threat analysis. Now you've worked uh, with black and black main media and, and you've done secret compass. How does this idea of a friction point translate commercially where mm-hmm. you have probably less visibility on physical threats. You have commercial threats. Yep. How do you think through this idea of a friction point? And is it, does it even translate? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, in the in the military, we, we use something called the combat estimates, that, that, which has got many incarnations in the world of business. But ultimately, it's a process of taking a question, 
taking a, a threat or an opportunity, analyzing that to see you know what's what you want out of it. So that might be you know entering a new market in the world of business. It might be um, you know countering uh, you know your competitors and figuring that out. Um, so the way the way we do it in the military is is going through these a series of questions, a series of seven questions, whereby you try and approach it analytically and break it down and um, you start off by looking at you know what 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 the threats are the opportunities the standard sort of SWOT analysis you look at what the sort of friendly forces are you know what what are your the guys on your side what can they bring so that involves your own team and involves any resources and then taking that and and hopefully transferring that into um, counterbalance whatever your mission might be so you, you know you, your mission might come down from your commander or your your boss in your business um, or if you are the boss then you write that mission statement you decide what it, what is the effect then that you want to achieve from that um, and then using the information you've gleaned from from your anal- analysis you then come up with your your courses of action and in the military we tend to come up with three you try and do three different ones and then you you run through each of them you practice them you war game them um, and hopefully, just by doing that, by going through that process, and a lot of this is intuitive, but by going through the process and forcing yourself to sit down and write it all down, what that does is it highlights these friction points along the way, and, and hopefully you'll be able to overcome them um, in a systematic manner. But um, I think that's it's key to, re- to do rehearsals, you know, if you can, to, to actually talk through the plan with all your team. Even if you know the plan in your own mind, it's part of that communication process that I was talking about earlier to make sure everybody else is aware of the plan. And also getting everybody else's inputs. You know, I always make a good point of, um, you know, even if I know ultimately how I'm going to achieve something or what I want to do, I always put it out to tender. I'll always get my team to come up with their own ideas just because you know, there might be something that I've forgotten about. And that, I guess, is trying to instill a level of humility in your leadership by making sure that everybody has a voice and that everybody can bring something to the table because there might just be some you know creative young thing who says you know what there's a better way of doing that and you've got to be open to suggestions you, as a leader i think it's important to actually swallow a bit of pride sometimes and accept that somebody else might be right how do you manage this expectation of leadership as at the same time that you're a friend you know, there's the perhaps stereotypical view of, you know, the, the officers don't fraternize with the troops kind of mm. thing. But in a modern knowledge worker type work environment, you end up spending so much time with people mm. that in effect they become friends. But then at the same time, when you have to make critical decisions, the the, the casual nature of that relationship can sometimes be difficult mm. when you need to either get feedback or when you need to. How do you how do you manage that or is there a way to manage that or maybe is the the way that the armed forces portray is actually incorrect and that's not how it is anymore that was like from the victorian era <laughs> no i mean there is an element you know you do you do kind of you do socialize with your with your troops with your subordinates um but there is there is a line you know certainly in the, in the military you're you're not expected to go and get horrendously you know inappropriate with with, with the people that you're effectively a, a leader of um and, and and ultimately, you want to maintain a level of respect. It's, it is more difficult in in the sort of civilian workplace where there's a flatter hierarchy, perhaps, where you do socialise more. And yeah, that's tough. But you know, it, it is workable. It's manageable. I think it's it's about making sure that you demonstrate when when necessary those leadership skills and and leading from the front and, and making the right decisions will engender that 
that feeling of respect. And I think that's what it, it comes down to is, is respect and making sure that there is mutual respect on both sides. Um, but yeah, it, it's one of the biggest challenges. Mm. And things that have gone wrong, like humorous with some of uh, some things that have just gone catastrophically wrong, whether in business or in an expedition. Or yeah. Just, uh, you know, the kind of thing where you had done all your analysis and you had mm. done all the things and just just went absolutely wrong. <laughs> I mean, it happens, you know, of course it happens. And, you know, expeditions like businesses are not without risk and, and nor will they ever be or would you want them to be. Um, so, yeah, no, thing, things do go, do go wrong. There's been plenty of times where we've kind of underestimated how much food we've needed in the middle of the desert or water and, and actually find yourself in a very tricky situation, running low on supplies. Um, or you might have just employed the wrong guide who turns out to be utterly useless and doesn't know the way, you know, and, th and that happens. You know, I, I, I've been in a couple of situations where, you know, I've got, got a local guy who's been sort of telling me about how well he knows the area. He gets to the area and then actually you realize he just hasn't got a clue where he is. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know how to use a compass or a map or, or anything else. And so that was a bad judgment call, but you know, some people have got, got good bluster and can, and can pull it off. But um, yeah, I, I think ultimately you, you need to know when to stop. And, and we had a guy recently in the middle of the Omani deserts who had got us into that situation. And actually he generally didn't know which direction he was going. And obviously in the, this day and age when you can go straight onto Google Maps on your phone and you can see quite clearly that he is going in the wrong direction, um, then you have to actually show a bit of courage. And even though he's the, the sort of expert, so to speak, um, which he clearly wasn't, you have to say, stop, you know, I'm sorry, but this is not right. Even though um, he might be the local person who you're having to rely on, you've got to show a bit of courage and um, make the right decision to intervene sometimes. Mm. And do you, do you think that right now we're living in an age where uh, people are actively looking romantically at this age of exploration and seeking these adventures because we we've lost it in, in modern day life. And, and that's one of the reasons why your show is as popular as it is. And if, if so, what do you think is left for people to really connect with that inner explorer? I think you're right. I think it's that level of that sense of connection is, is something that perhaps we, we do lack a little bit of in, in the modern world. And especially if you live in a big city where you don't necessarily have that immediate access to to nature, and I think that's that's not as abstract as it might sound. I think actually, you know, as human beings, we we've evolved, you know, for over over the course of two million years into beings that, that have certain requirements, and those certain requirements are, you know, that sense of being a bit of a nomad. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of desire within, I'd say, a lot of people that 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 needs to go off wandering, and that that might just be for a couple of weeks vacation or, or indeed it might be for, for a more of an adventure. But I think um, it, it is a burning desire in a lot of people. And uh, I think you do occasionally need to just take yourself away, disconnect as much as you can um, and uh, just go away with your friends and, and be that in a caveman who's going on a sort of hunting party because that's that's what we need as psychological beings. We, we need that, that sense of unknown. We need those risks in our lives mm. because without risk, um, life becomes a bit dull and um, I think people underestimate just how much it's actually a, a requirement it's essential it's not it's not a luxury I think the going away and and putting yourself out there and, and exposing yourself to little risks and you don't need to get charged by a mammoth to do that mm. you, you need to just go and 
have a bit of the unknown and, and put yourself at the mercy of serendipity because it's healthy, it's good for the soul. What have you found scarier, going out on an expedition or starting a business? <laughs> um, definitely starting a business, I would say. Um, I mean, the two kind of go hand in hand for me now, but um, expeditions are can be can be terrifying, of course, but, but ultimately I find it very thrilling. Starting a business, especially one that involved a passion for me which was the world of adventure and expeditions was more terrifying because you're suddenly taking that was once a hobby and turning that transforming that into your life you know and and, and that in itself is going all in it's it's pulling away any safety blankets it's making sure that you don't have a plan b because i think if you've got a plan b you'll never put you know your full force into into plan a and so it's it's terrifying giving everything up and for me that meant leaving the army behind it meant um putting all of my money into into a business and going all out but I knew that if I didn't do it, then I'd always have that, that question. So I'd encourage anyone, if you've got a passion, if you've got an idea um, for a business and you think you can do it and you, you, you know, you've got to be confident, you've got to know that it's going to work and make sure you do all of your due diligence and do your feasibility studies and all the rest of it. But if you think it's got legs, just go for it. Cool. We're going to do a rapid round of questions now. If you could change one thing about your life instantly, what would it be? Um, ooh, I'd probably... Eat healthier. Yes. <laughs> kind of hard to do in some of your shows, it's man. Tough. I've seen you eat some yeah. pretty gross stuff. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, start over at 18, knowing everything you know now. What would you do differently? I'd go down the same path. I'd do exactly what I did. I'd probably just try and spend a bit more time with friends, family, and loved ones. If you have to teach someone one thing, what would you teach? Don't take anything for granted. Yeah, I can imagine when you're on the floor, that mattress feels pretty good. Um, what's one bad habit you're trying to get rid of? Can't be eating. <laughs> um, I'm my bad habit. Well, going away so much actually, that's probably my my worst habit. So mm. I'm I'm going to actually force myself to um, put down a few roots. I think. Yeah. Mm. So because you live most people's bucket lists. Like literally, you you probably have done everything that everybody else has on their bucket list. Is there anything left on that bucket list? There's lots of places. I mean, the world's a big place. I've there's there's lots of places I've never been to. I mean, I've I've never been to Portugal. I'd love to go to Portugal. <laughs> that seems very uh, <laughs> unrisky, I guess. Well, I don't know. I think you can find a bit of risk anywhere. Oh, uh, really? Well, it, you know, one. I think you've been asked this question before. Any interest in Antarctica and uh, and North Pole? It seems. Like I I like I like the warm weather. <laughs> I'll leave that to the experts. <laughs> Fair enough. And um, if we look back at slavery, we think, oh my goodness, how did we ever let this happen? Yeah. What do you think people will look back on us 50 years from now and think, what the hell were these guys doing? Um, I think probably social media. <laughs> I think really? people will think, what on earth were these people doing, spending their entire lives um, you know, putting pictures of themselves on, on, a, on, a, on a phone. Hopefully we will have evolved out of that in 50 years, I would like to think. Nice. What, what are the top three things, kit-wise, that you do not leave an expedition without making sure you have? Well, I'm not going to go for the obvious ones. So I think, I mean, my camera, I've got a, I've got a nice camera. Um, I could like it that I think is for me that's my my passion my hobby so I take that um, I always take one smart shirt which even if you're going out to the most remote parts of the jungle the deserts 
you never know who you're going to bump into. And, and I've certainly met some interesting characters in the middle of nowhere. So I think you, sometimes you need to look a little bit smart and jungle <laughs> rags good. just won't do. Um, and then I, I'm sad to say, you know, going exactly against what I said on my last question, I'd probably still take my iPhone because, um, you know, I've, I've still got a, I've still got to, you know, keep my sponsors happy and pay the bills. <laughs> yeah. Who are, this maybe is a good opportunity to give a, a name check to your sponsors. Who, who are your sponsors? Well, I'm very lucky. I've got um, the likes of IWC watches. They support me. Bellstaff. Um, Oliver Sweeney I've just bought a range of clothing out with Oliver Sweeney um, they've been great I've got some new shoes designed uh, and some desert boots and a bag um, crag hoppers uh, Leica as I mentioned um, I hope I haven't missed anyone else <laughs> but uh, no I think you know explorers rely on sponsors and you know, if you're a business that wants to showcase your product, then actually I think you can do worse than getting getting decent explorers on board because these are the guys that are pushing limits in, in very testing environments. Um, so I've been very lucky. You know, the likes of Shackleton, you know, had his um, you know had his jackets designed um, by by Burberry and, and Bellstaff gave Lawrence of Arabia a jacket. You know, so I think this is a, a long-standing tradition. Um, and it, it's uh, it's very symbiotic relationships, so mm. it's good. Hopefully, it will continue. Excellent. Well, Lev, thanks for joining us. Uh, great to hear your story. I have tons more questions, but I know your time is very valuable, and I would look forward to seeing the new book and the new TV show when it comes out in the summer. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud, and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.